This is the Rabbi Patrick Podcast, Episode 5, Dealing with Rabbis. I get a lot of email, and one of the emails I got years ago has sort of stayed with me. And I don't have the exact email in front of me, but it basically went like this. Dear Patrick, so I wasn't rabbi yet, so, Dear Patrick, I am interested in converting to Judaism, so I called my local synagogue, and no one answered the phone. I just got a message, a voicemail. And so then I called again a different time, and I got a receptionist. The receptionist said that the rabbi wasn't available and uh, that she would take my number and call me back. The rabbi would call me back. Well, it's been a week now, and the rabbi hasn't called me back. So what I'm guessing is that nobody wants to talk to me, uh, or potentially that the rabbi is turning me away three times. Because I saw an episode of Sex in the City where uh, the character wanted to convert to Judaism, and so she had to chase around the rabbi and because uh, he was trying to turn her away. So I just need to know, is it that the rabbi hates me, or that the rabbi is trying to turn me away three times Please let me know, sincerely, person on the internet. So, this speaks to something that I think is very true, which is that there are lots of misconceptions about rabbis and about synagogues. And my hope in this podcast, which is going to be a little bit shorter than other podcasts I've done, is just to clear the air a little bit on what rabbis do and don't do, what is going on in our secret world that you don't know about, and maybe talk a little bit about why that rabbi isn't calling you back. So first, misconceptions about rabbis. Like all clergy, there is a belief in what we do, about what we do, uh, and then there is what we actually do. So here are some things that people believe about rabbis, and I'm going to knock them out uh, one at a time. So here's a few misconceptions that people have about rabbis and probably about all other clergy, if you were to get right down to it. So here we go. Uh, The first one, we own our own schedules, meaning we make our own schedules, we uh, settle times for meetings and things like that. So we own our schedules. Another is that we are full-time in our place of worship. Uh, Another one is that we even work in a synagogue. The other is that we answer our own phones and check our own email. And lastly, that we as rabbis, it could be true of all clergy, sort of have secret motives. We have things that we think and things that we do, and it's sort of like having the secrets in the palm of the master's hand. And if you can grab it fast enough from us, you will have it. So, those are some misconceptions. Now, let's go through one at a time. So, we own our schedules. A lot of people I know, including people who work in the Jewish community, think that rabbis have people approach them with things that need to be done. So, things like bar and bat mitzvah classes, uh, conversions, board meetings, hospital visits, whatever the case may be, and that we have these schedules, either on our phones or tablets or Uh, paper books. Uh, It's funny, I have all these apps on my phone and I run these websites. I use a paper book to schedule my day. But nevertheless, 
that we have these books in front of us, and so you can email us and say, Rabbi, I'd like you to come to a lunch event for Hillel. It's at 11 o'clock. And that naturally we will just take our pen or pencil and, and we will just write in 11 o'clock because we own that. That is our time, and we own it. We get to do what we want with our time. And that that explains why sometimes we work at midnight or 11 a.m. or 2 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning, that we own our schedules and we get to pick what we want to do when we want to do it. So here's the truth. Often we do not own our own schedules. So this will I'll go into more, but often many of us have jobs beyond what we do in the clergy life that you see. So you see us in the synagogue or you see us in the community. That may not be what we do full-time. What we do to build a life and what we do to make a living may be two different things entirely. So if we are responsible to do work for a boss or we own a business or something like that, we may not own that time. We may have to work from 8 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. And so we can't go to that uh, lunch event at the JCC, or we can't meet you for coffee at 2 in the afternoon at the coffee shop to discuss your conversion path, or whatever the case may be. That could very well be something that's just not possible for us. Now, for some of us who do work full-time uh, in either the synagogue world or in a nonprofit, uh, we may still not own our schedule. We may be so back-to-back all the time that we are stuck in nothing but meetings. So it is very hard for us to schedule a time to meet with you. Or we may not be able to physically leave the building some days because we're stuck doing whatever we're doing. This is very true of rabbis who work for nonprofits, which are not synagogues. Um, so for people who are the directors of offices and nonprofits and things like that, yes, you may see us out and about uh, during the day, but it may be because we're grabbing that quick cup of coffee before we go back into an office, or we had a meeting outside of the office and we're just trying to get back to where we need to be uh, seated. I know some rabbis who will take sick days from work in order to get more work done. How sick is that? Taking sick days, taking vacation days to get more work done because being in the office is more stressful and time-consuming. Interesting stuff there. Now, in terms of owning our schedule, that could also physically mean we don't book our own time. So for some rabbis, particularly older rabbis, they may have an assistant whose job it is to handle all of the administrative aspects of their job. So things like sending out an email, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but sending out an email, scheduling times, things like that, rabbis may just not do that. If you say to a rabbi, you know, can you meet me at you know, 2.30 to talk about my conversion, they may say, well, check with my assistant. Because they don't actually own their time. They go into the day not knowing what the day is going to hold. By the way, this is how the President of the United States works. You know, the President does not set his own schedule. And maybe one day it'll be her schedule, but for now, his schedule. 
there's an administrative person who does that for you. Uh, and you can even see this in movies, right, where the president walks into the office and it's, uh, you know, Mr. President or Madam President, you have an 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, such and such, such and such, you know, and the president will say, please schedule time with my child, you know, right? Um, and some rabbis, it's like that. Rabbis do not necessarily own their schedule. I spoke about the idea of not being full-time in a synagogue. This is very true. I know one rabbi who has three jobs. Three. Teaching in two places and part-time rabbi of a synagogue in, in one community. Right? Three jobs. This is not a young rabbi, by the way. This is a rabbi who's sort of ending his career, kind of winding down. I know some rabbis who have been full-time pulpit rabbis who leave that because they just can't take it anymore. So they go and they work part-time here, part-time there. I know a couple of rabbis that have internet businesses, so they run their internet businesses during the day, and then uh, maybe they do weekends at a synagogue. So they are, yes, the rabbi of a synagogue, but they're the rabbi of a synagogue basically one and a half days out of the week. So many rabbis can't meet you on that Thursday at 5 o'clock uh, because that Thursday at 5 o'clock is when they're with their families or it's when they are wrapping up business at that secular job that they, they hold or they're doing that 10-hour shift at the hospital because they have a chaplain's gig. Um, so a lot of rabbis aren't full-time. So you have to understand that although we think of rabbis as being people in buildings, being pastoral, that's not necessarily the role of a rabbi. A role of a rabbi can be very much out in community. Um, and even though that sounds like you'd have more flexibility, really you're just shuttling yourself from one place to another. Now some rabbis may not be at a synagogue at all. So I'll give myself as an example. I am terrible um, with scheduling time with people. I'm very, very bad at it. And it's because I'm one of these people who does multiple jobs. Um, and so carving out time is very difficult. Sometimes at the end of the day, I just want to chill out. I just want to watch TV. And it's very hard for me to make time in the evenings in particular to uh, meet with people. Um, do I think it would be better if I worked at a synagogue? Probably not. You probably just trade one series of time for another series of time. Um, but I have people ask me every now and then, you know, can I meet you in your office? And I tell them, yeah, sure, it's the Starbucks down the street, but you have to meet me at a, a certain period of time when I'm available. You know, particularly in towns like where I live, I live in Atlanta, and our traffic is getting horrible. It's, it's horrendous. So if someone wants to meet me at 5 o'clock, sure, my day is over at 5 o'clock. I could meet you at 5 o'clock, but you have to meet me right down the street. Otherwise, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get to where you are. Uh, so that's the thing about not being in a synagogue at all. You may have the title rabbi. doesn't mean that you have that particular kind of job. There's lots of different kinds of rabbis. So I spoke earlier about answering our own phone and checking our own email. Like I said, there are rabbis who don't answer their own phone. They will answer the phone if the receptionist or their assistant transfers the phone call to them. Uh, there are rabbis who don't check their own email. Uh, we think that that's really crazy, but please consider that uh, Congressman Lindsey Graham uh, who was running for uh, president at one point and is on the uh, technology committee actually said that he does not have email. 
right? He does not check his email. Um, you know, so that's a person who works for Congress, right? <laughs> who doesn't check his email, uh, has never written an email a day in his life. So something to think about there. Um, another is that we have secret motives. So this goes back to the sex in the city. She has to like chase after the rabbi because he's turning her away three times. It also goes back to the uh, email I got uh, from the guy who said, you know, is the rabbi uh, just ignoring me or is this part of some big plot to, to test my sincerity? Honestly, I would like to think that those of us who are rabbis are sort of that Obi-Wan Kenobi that we're testing people all the time and we have all this secret knowledge in our palms and all that. The truth of the matter is, no, the rabbi probably just got busy or there was an administrative issue. No one ever called you back. Um, I am a ball dropper, big time. I'm really bad about that. I'm trying to improve by improving my time management. Um... I often forget to reply to emails. I'll think that I did, and I didn't. So these are things I'm trying to improve on. And I'm a fairly young, I'm 33, I'm a fairly young, tech-savvy, digital native, right? <laughs> like, I'm pretty good about texting and emailing and calling, and I mess up all of the time. So uh, I do not, if you don't hear back from me, it's not because I don't have a secret motive. It's not because I uh, am testing you. It's not because I want to make sure that you're actually sincere, uh, although I don't get these kind of emails. But still, speaking for myself and speaking for others, it's often because we just drop the ball. It's just that simple. We don't have secret motives. We're not testing you. Uh, you know, We're not uh, offended that you emailed instead of calling, although you should always call. Always, 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 always. Always, always call rabbis. Always. Did I mention you should always call rabbis? Always call rabbis. Never email. So, misconceptions about rabbis. We've gotten through that. Here are some other things to consider about rabbis. This is a very good quote just for life in general. What is measured can be improved upon. So I just started working out. And, and by just started, I mean I've done it twice. <laughs> and when I started working out, I had a personal trainer whose job it was to uh, do a fitness assessment. So he tested how many push-ups I could do, which is zero. How many sit-ups could I do in a minute, which was 60. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, what was the uh, circumference of my uh, abdomen, which was embarrassing. My hips, which was even more embarrassing. Uh, the size of my arms, all of these other things. Now, why would he do that? Because anything that can be measured can be improved upon. If I just weighed myself, it wouldn't give me a very accurate estimate of how I'm doing, or assessment rather, how I'm doing in my health, right? Because it's just weight. So you can be, your BMI, your body mass index, can be... Uh, really, really high. I mean, you could be morbidly obese, and it's because you are, uh, you know, a pro athlete, right? You're a short pro athlete, so you weigh a lot because you have lots of muscle, um, and you're very dense, right? But according to your BMI, you're overweight. Uh, alternatively, you could also be relatively skinny and be all body fat. So you don't just weigh yourself, right? 
you have these other things that you measure. How many of this exercise can you do? How many of that exercise you can do? And then over time, you can chart it, right? So how many push-ups could you do now? Zero. How many are you going to try to be able to do? Five, right? So it's those kinds of things that you can test on. What's interesting about the evangelical Christian world is that they are great at measuring things. So, how many people came to the Sunday morning traditional service? How many came to the Sunday morning alternative service? How many came to Bible study? How many came to the Christmas pageant? How many members do you have in your small groups? How many small groups did you grow within a given amount of time? How many baptisms did you do? How many conversions did you do? Which I guess is the same as a baptism. Um, how many uh, weddings did you do? How many funerals did you do? These are things that are all measured. I had the pastor of a multi-campus evangelical church here in Atlanta tell me that that is a business practice of theirs. That when they sit together as a board, they talk about how can they improve their numbers. And it's very much weighed to things like how many people showed up, how many donations are you getting, how many life cycle events have you done. We don't necessarily do this in the Jewish community. I'm sure that some synagogues do this, uh, but uh, the thing is, is that with conversions in particular, no one measures that. No one ever says, Rabbi, you know, you only did five conversions last year. We need to double that metric. We need to, you need to be doing a minimum of one a month, right? So go out there, let's figure out what we need to do. What kind of strategy do we need for that? Evangelical churches, and probably some mainline ones as well, do this. They have metrics. They have things that they measure. In the synagogue world, it's budget-oriented. And it's, it's education-oriented. So it's things like, you know, how many bar bat mitzvah kids do you have? Um, you know, and how many donations are you getting in? So those are the things that are measured. But conversion is not something that's measured. So since conversion isn't measured, it's not something that can be improved upon. I'll say that again, because conversion isn't something that's measured, it's not something that can be improved upon. Now, you can have a Derech Torah, a Path of Torah class, which is often something that is used as a uh, way to um, give conversion students some education, but then you can include other people. So you could have that, right? That's something you can measure, how many people signed up for Derech Torah. But at the end of the day, you're probably not measuring and trying to improve upon how many conversions you did. And so that's a problem. That's a problem. Because from where you're coming from, it makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't you measure that? But a lot of places don't. A lot of people don't. Another issue that needs to be sort of thought about is that if you do find a rabbi who... Uh, you know, wants to work with you, has time, is, is getting in touch with you, and all of that, there may be an issue where they love you a little too much. And by that I mean, you come in, and you're all about Hashem this, Torah that, mitzvot this, uh, Jewish history that. And it's very easy for rabbis to have a little bit of a conflict of interest in that there's not a lot of people who want to talk to them about all of the things that they love all of the time. And, unfortunately, the second that you convert, the theory is you're not going to meet with them anymore about that kind of stuff. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is a theory that I have, that sometimes rabbis accidentally 
draw out the length of conversions because they really enjoy <laughs> meeting with conversion students and talking about the things that they love. It is more fun to talk about how to live a Jewish life than it is to talk about the roof of a synagogue. It is more fun to talk about what the mitzvot mean to you than uh, having a meeting to settle a dispute between two staff members in a synagogue. Right Now, this is in synagogues where the rabbi is also basically the executive director. So, a little different, different kinds of communities. But these types of conversations are more fun than having to figure out how to get people to come to the Purim party or how to make bar and bat mitzvah classes more appealing. You are more fun and more interesting than anyone else the rabbi is going to encounter in that day. So, there's a little bit of an incentive for the rabbi to drag it on a little bit. So if you ever sort of feel like, you know, this rabbi is just not serious. He or she is just not taking me seriously, is not uh, thinking about when my conversion is going to be over. Just remember, it may be a compliment. So something to think about there. They, may, they love you and maybe a little bit too much in a certain kind of way. What does this mean? You need to be proactive and you need to be honest. So you need to meet with a rabbi and then ask, you know, how long does conversion normally take? Now that may, to a rabbi, seem like a very absurd question. I think that it is an okay question to ask. And if it offends a rabbi, it's either the tone that you used it in like, so rabbi, how long is it going to take before I'm a Jew? Which I don't think anybody speaks like that, but... If you say it like that, okay, that can be taken as an offense, but if you meet a rabbi and you want to work with that person and you say, you know, what is your process like? How long do you, does this process normally take for, for most students who are serious and committed in the way that I am? Um, that's going to be very meaningful uh, and is going to be very helpful compared to just waiting, you know, when am I going to be told I get to be a Jew now? And then having all that tension and all that frustration built up inside of you and then calling up your friend Rabbi Patrick and saying, Rabbi so-and-so is being a flake and is cheating on me and, and cheating, uh, uh, cheating this whole relationship and, and all that. So be proactive, ask the right questions, and be honest as well. Say, you know what, I, you know, I've been studying with you for X number of years. Uh, you know, what do you see as a full conversion process? Let's hold to that. Uh, a lot of times we're afraid to uh, hold people accountable, and that's very important. I wish my students held me, held me more accountable to them. Um, so if you're a student of mine, hold me more accountable, please. I would really appreciate that. Another thing that's important is that no one teaches you this stuff in rabbinical school. I asked a friend of mine how long it took him to learn life cycle. And he said, and so life cycle is bar and bat mitzvah, weddings, funerals, conversion, all of that. That's called life cycle. I said, you know, how long did you have to study that? And I assumed that that's like a semester. He told me it was a day and a half. So the things that we are thought of as rabbis, like the things people think we do all day, for my friend, that was a day and a half out of five years of school. A day and a half out of five years of school. 
That is huge. What does that tell you? No one teaches you this stuff in rabbinical school. No one teaches you the right way to do a conversion. No one teaches you the right way to do a wedding. Now, you'll learn the halakha. You'll learn what Jewish law teaches. But in terms of how to negotiate those boundaries and relationships, what a program should look like, all these other things, no one's teaching you that. The way that we developed it at Darshan Yeshiva was by talking to rabbis we knew we wanted to work with and figuring out what worked best, as well as talking to people that wanted to be conversion students and getting their early feedback on what was not working for them with other rabbis and other experiences. That's how we created the program that we have. Uh, we had a conservative rabbi who... Or I should say he's the rabbi of a conservative synagogue. He's not a conservative rabbi. But uh, we had the rabbi of a conservative synagogue look over our curriculum, um, and he uh, was very serious about that. We had another rabbi who helped with figuring out how long the program should be. We actually cut it down by two months. Most rabbis want a one-year program. We cut it down to ten. Uh, we have some rabbis who, yes, it's a ten-month program. They will actually cut it down to six. Um, because that's just sort of how they view conversion, right? So these were all things that we had to figure out on our own. There is no guidebook that says, here is how you do it. It must be a year. It must include such and such. So for the rabbi that you're talking to about conversion, he or she may have no concept of what is supposed to be done. I know one rabbi, the way that he does conversion, or at least he used to do it this way, you'd sit down, meet with them, You'd talk, and then you would go to synagogue once a week, and when you would meet with him once a week, once a week, mind you, um, you would just talk, and you would talk about books, and you'd share things like that, and then that was the process. It was hanging out. It was pastoral counseling. Uh, something like uh, my approach uh, as a rabbi is a little different. I tend to let people kind of be free. I'm very much interested in the coursework. Um, and otherwise, in terms of people's Jewish identities, things like that, I leave them alone. I don't do a ton of the counseling, um, which is why I'm actually starting to rethink uh, my role at Darshan Yeshiva, and I'm taking more and more of an administrative role uh, so that other rabbis who do more of the pastoral counseling uh, can, can be available to do that for me. And I can focus on things like building the website, things that other people can't do. Um, in any case, um, so no one teaches you this stuff in rabbinical school. Uh, and it's important that you know that going in with a rabbi, that there is no rule book, there's some sort of customs, there's some best practices, but really, I mean, we're just making it up as we go along. And finally, there's no conspiracy against you. I promise. I promise that if that rabbi is not calling you back, uh, it's not you. Uh, it's them, and it's their schedule. And that's just what they're up to. So how do you deal with rabbis? I mentioned this in the last podcast. The secret is to show up. The best way to impress a rabbi is to show up. Show up unannounced at a Shabbat service, at a party, at a whatever. Go up to the rabbi, shake his or her hand, and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I want to convert. I called you. I never heard back. When can we schedule a time to get together? And if... Uh, the rabbi says, well, speak to my assistant. Okay, physically go to the synagogue and go to the assistant and say, I would like to schedule a time 
what looks good for Rabbi so-and-so. I know plenty of people who think that that's absurd, right? Like, why should I have to work that hard? Well, it's, don't think of it as working that hard. Think of it as cutting the rabbi in the synagogue a break, right? Because how many emails and phone calls do they get every day, right? How many times is their day interrupted? Whereas if you physically go down there and say, hi, you know, like to, like to schedule an appointment, that will seem like the most exciting thing ever, ever, compared to sending a blitz of emails that are never going to get answered. So, think about it, and my Skype just went up. See, I record this live, no editing. <laughs> uh, so, misconceptions about rabbis, it's important to know them. We in the Jewish community do not measure and improve upon conversion. Uh, we do at Darshan Yeshiva, just saying, just a little plug. Um, and for many of us who work in brick-and-mortar communities, we don't have a process. Uh, there is no rule book. We're just winging it. Uh, so you need to respect that, and you just need to show up. I promise if you show up, everything will work out okay. And if it doesn't, that's not someone you should be working with in the first place. In the next episode, episode 6, what you need to know to be a Jew. Until then, take care.